First John chapter number 5, and would you please stand with me as we read our text, verses 9 through verse number 13. We begin in verse number 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Boy, that verse takes a very important, complex topic and sure does make it simple. I can even get that this morning in my detoxing state. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, then you don't have life. Verse number 13 is where our text comes from. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Our message this morning is entitled, A No-So Salvation. Let's pray. Father, bless this message today. Lord, I know that it's true because the Word of God is true. And Lord, help us to have clarity of mind and help us to communicate clearly and concisely. But Lord, no matter how we communicate, if the Holy Spirit doesn't take the truth and bring it to the hearts of men, then uh, Lord, nothing of any eternal consequences will be accomplished here this morning. We confess that. And so we ask you for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to hearts and minds and to uh, perhaps convict that person that is not saved and draw them to a saving knowledge of you. Perhaps there would be a believer today that's struggling with assurance of salvation. Lord, uh, may the truth of God's word help them as well. God, we pray above all that Jesus Christ would be glorified in all that is said and done today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Do you know if you would go to heaven if you died today? Sunday school teacher, I'm sure many of you have heard this story. A Sunday school teacher asked her class that question. And of course, all the little boys and girls raised their hand. She said, would you, I'm sorry, I messed that up already. She said, how many of you want to go to heaven? And so they're all enthusiastically raising their hands, except for little Johnny over there. He's not raising his hands. And so the teacher thinks, well, maybe he didn't hear. Maybe he was thinking about something else. So she asks it again. All the boys and girls raise their hand. Johnny doesn't raise his hand. After about three attempts, she finally says, Johnny, do you not want to go to heaven? And he said, well, sure I do. I just thought you were getting a busload up right now. Well, we, you know, thank you. I guess some people hadn't heard that one. I always like it when I recycle old jokes when my kids were younger and they'd actually laugh about them. But if you died today, do you know that you would go to heaven? How many times have I asked that question, whether personal witnessing, knocking on doors, and 
I've heard the answer, I hope so. I hope so. You know, your eternal destiny doesn't have to be a hope so. It can be a no-so. And to have a no-so salvation is not prideful. Some people get confused thinking that if you say you know you're going to heaven, that you're being prideful. You must be a really good person or you must think very highly of yourself. But just the opposite is to is the truth of that statement. Having a no-so salvation is not arrogance or pride, because if you truly have a no-so salvation, you know that your salvation is not dependent upon you, but rather it's dependent on Jesus Christ. And really, that's the only way that you can have a no-so salvation. You may, you may live a pretty good day one day, but you're going to fall short the next day. And you may feel like that you're saved or feel worthy of being saved one day, but the next day you're going to feel so utterly unworthy and you're going to know that um, if you're basing it on you and your performance or your feelings, you're going to have more days than not that you're not going to know. You're only going to be hoping that you would make it to heaven. The world that we live in has always been this way, but it seems like it's worse today. It's filled with counterfeits, with schemes, with insincere marketing. You know, social media has brought Hollywood's production capabilities to every one of you. If you have a smartphone, you have all of the Hollywood producing capabilities. I I saw a commercial the other day where they were uh, advertising a smartphone and they were actually showing it being used in Hollywood uh, productions, and I know that's probably not what they use in real ones, but you, we have amazing capabilities, and all of this capability is being used by social media to market individuals, to produce an image. You may be so consumed with what people think of you that you may even believe your own lies, and that's what is called self-deception. And people are so concerned about their image, their social image, that oftentimes self-deception is an easy thing in today's culture. Proverbs 14, verse number 12, gives us a reality check. It says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You may think that, hey, this is the image that I want to portray. I even believe my own image, and this is the way that seems right unto me. But listen, you're going to die. And one of these days when you die, we're all going to stand before God, and you may have convinced yourself or you may convince others of what you believe or what you are, but when you and I stand before God, guess what? He's going to know the absolute truth. He's not going to believe the marketing. He's going to know your inward thoughts, your secrets. He's going to know everything about every skeleton in your closet. He's going to know all of your shame, all of the secrets that you know that you just you don't want the whole world to know. You certainly would be a whole lot more comfortable if God didn't know, but I'm telling you God does know. He knows all things. As you look at verse number 13 once again, I want to remind you that John is writing to both believers and 
non-believers. He says, these things, have I, think, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. If you believe on the name of the Son of God, then John is writing to you so that you can know that you have eternal life. And if you have not believed on the name of the Son of God, and you hear about this concept that you can know that you have eternal life, then maybe, just maybe, John is saying, that will motivate you to say, hey, I want that. I want Jesus, because if I get Jesus, then I'll have life, and then and only then can I have a no-so salvation. Now, my first point this morning is called exclamations and surprises. I believe there are a lot of people that are going to have some surprises when it is all said and done. In fact, there are many that think that they are going to heaven, but they are not. In fact, the majority of people, according to what Jesus said, the majority of people are on their way to hell. He said that uh, there's few that find the way to life. And so we live in a culture... I guarantee you in Statesville, if you talk to a hundred people, you'd probably find that at least 80 or 90 percent of them, if they would talk to you about religious matters, 80 or 90 percent of them would say, yeah, I think that I'm going to heaven. I hope that I'm going to heaven. But they, they wouldn't say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to hell. I witness to people and every now and then I'll say, do you know if you'd go to heaven if you were to die today? And they say, no, I'm on my way to hell. And so then, you know, when the paramedics resuscitate me, I continue to talk to them. <laughs> because it's so refreshing for somebody to actually be honest with the preacher and honest with themselves. There are many that think they're going to heaven but are not. Jesus said in John 5.39, search the scriptures for in them... That's the scriptures. Ye think ye have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. Some people, and I've seen politicians do this, just like, uh, just like non-politicians, they use the scripture to back up what they believe or say. The way that seemeth right to them is ultimately their final authority. And if I can find a passage of Scripture or a portion of Scripture that backs me up, then I'm going to use that to try to add some authority to my way. But ultimately to them, the Scripture is not the final authority. It's just backing up their their viewpoint, their self-deception. There are some that think they're okay just because they go to church. Jesus addressed this in Luke 13 and Verse number 25, we pick up a little bit into verse 25, where he said that some are saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall they begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity." Here are some people that they think that they're going to be okay. And you talk about an exclamation and a surprise. Lord, we, we drunk with you. We ate and drank with you. We, we went to the restaurant together. We went to church together. We heard you teach and we know all these things about you. So surely you're going to let us in. And the Lord says, depart from me. I, I never knew you. You're just workers of iniquity. Others, put their trust in what they have felt, uh, 
or experience. Now, I am not diminishing experiential salvation. I am not saying that if you got born again that you didn't feel something. I I think that feeling something is probably fairly normal for most people. You pass from light, from darkness to light, you get uh, God moving into your life, something, you're going to feel something. Most people, when they get born again, they have this common feeling of just feeling like a huge burden is lifted. You know what that burden is? It's the burden of sin. But feelings and experiences are not adequate in and of themselves. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils? Listen, I I can tell you firsthand, as a preacher, I've been preaching now for over 30 years, and when I stand before God one day, if God were to ask me this question, Randy, why should I let you into heaven? I can promise you I'm not going to say, well, because I preached all those years, Lord. I know from the Bible that it's going to have nothing to do with anything that I've done. It's going to have something, it's going to have everything to do with what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. Lord, Lord. We call you Lord. We prayed. I prayed this prayer when I was 13. I've experienced all of this. I've had prayers that you answered. I've known people that if you talk to them about their soul, hey, do you know that you're saved? And I've had this happen on more than one occasion. Yeah, I know that I'm saved because I had this car wreck and... I thought I was going to die, and they they said that I wasn't going to make it, and I prayed this prayer, and miraculously, God healed me, and he spared my life. So I know that I'm saved. Listen, Jesus puts that category of people right here in this text of people who say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Verse 23, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There's a lot of people say, yeah, I know the Lord, but does he know you? In our Sunday school curriculum in uh, the month of November, we've been taking a look at the book of Esther, and there's an amazing story in there about Mordecai and Haman. And Haman was a man who, he was the king's right-hand man, and uh, the king really, really liked Haman and promoted him to a position of glory. He was really, he was number two in the kingdom. He was the second man, and no one had more glory and honor than the king other than Haman. Haman had plotted to destroy the Jews because Mordecai the, the Jew that was part of the king's court, Haman would walk by and everybody else would bow to Haman, but Mordecai had, it was a man of principle. He wasn't a politician and Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. And boy, it just frosted Haman. I mean, he was bitter about that and he started plotting and planning how I can get Mordecai and he'd hatched 
this plan that, and some of his family and friends had told him, this is what you ought to do. He built this huge gallows and he was going to hang Mordecai on those gallows. Now, uh, Mordecai didn't know about this plan. The king didn't know about this plan. And so Haman got called to Esther's banquet. And the king was talking to Haman. He said, Haman, what, what should I do for the, the man that I want to honor? And Haman didn't know that Mordecai was the one that the king wanted to honor. And so Haman's just thinking, it's like, well, who would he want to honor more than me? And so Haman started telling him all that he want, really what Haman wanted done to himself. And he spelled it all out, let him ride on the king's horse and let him wear the king's apparel and let everybody say, thus shall it be to him that the king honor. And he had it all planned out. And after he got done, the king said, great, Haman, I want you to do all that for Mordecai. Man, that, that, you talk about countenance falling. How many people think that they are going to be welcomed into heaven? I can't think of a more terrifying concept, a more terrifying thought than to be expecting heaven only to hear those words from God Almighty Depart from me, I I never knew you. You're a worker of iniquity. Cast him into the lake of fire. Cast him where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, expecting peace and joy and the glories of heaven only to be cast into hell. Can you think of anything in this life, in all of this universe, that could be worse than that very thing? There are going to be some exclamations and some surprises when it's all said and done. Number two, I want to talk to you about some evidence for examination. Someone asked this question years ago. They said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? In 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 5, the Apostle Paul says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? The Bible describes the following evidence for salvation. And once again, this far surpasses any feeling, any event that you participated in. Uh, Listen, there are Baptists that they're, you know, saying the sinner's prayer is the equivalent of uh, the Catholic Mass or the ca- Catholic Confessional. It's just a religious ritual or a rite, R-I-T-E, of service that we do that is supposed to merit some kind of grace. Listen, salvation is something that takes place in the heart. It's not a religious ceremony or a prayer that we pray. Listen, you might, when you got saved, it might have been you prayed a prayer or it might have been something that you said from the heart. I think that there are plenty of people that have responded to a church invitation and they got born again before they got up front. I mean, right there, when they took that first step, their heart made that decision to receive Jesus Christ and it happened there. I think there's others that come forward and somebody shows them out of the Bible and they see it. And they pray that prayer, but it didn't really get into their heart 
until when they got home that night or later on that week. It might have been some other time. It starts with understanding the gospel and recognizing that we are sinners that need the gospel. But then there has to be, faith has to come in there and believing in Jesus, it has to come from the heart. Not from just the head and certainly not just from the lips. It has to be a decision that comes from the heart. So there are some evidences. Number one, a changed life. We refer to this as repentance. Repentance is a change of direction. I I recognize my sin. I recognize the areas that I'm wrong. I've heard all kinds of good definitions of repentance. My favorite one is this, I'm wrong, God, you're right, I'm on your side. That's the best way, the simplest way that I know to describe repentance. We could talk about a change in direction, a change of heart, a change of mind. There's certainly a change, and people get confused by repentance. I promise you, repentance does not mean that you clean your act up to come to God. You come to God as you are, but you have to come to him with a desire that the direction I was going in, I don't want to go that direction anymore. You can't say, well, I want to continue. I want to live my life the same way that I've been living it. I just want Jesus with me so that I can go to heaven when I die. That is not a belief from the heart. There has to be a changed attitude towards sin And you have to at least know something about what that sin is. Romans 6, verse number 17 says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. The next verse says, Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. This is not works here. This is, well, there is a work in this truth, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit, not the work of self-reformation. But rest assured, if you've ever been saved, then there has to be something that has changed in your life, a repentance, a turning from sin toward righteousness. Number two, number two, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're all different, and just like we all communicate different, we all listen different, we all have different personalities, the way the Holy Spirit manifests himself to me may be a little bit different than the way that he manifests his presence to you. But the Holy Spirit being present in our life means there's conviction. That is something inside of us that is convincing us about sin It's more than just our conscience. You can have a guilty conscience. Listen, we had a dog that would have a guilty conscience. And we could come home, and if that dog had uh, tore up something or did something that we had trained it not to do, that dog would be moping around. But that dog wasn't moping. That dog was moping around because it had been trained that there are consequences to this behavior. So we all have a conscience in that regard, but... When the Holy Spirit of God convicts us, oh, it's different. It's different. It's an enlightenment that is certainly not a pleasant thing, 
But oh, to the believer, it's our best friend. Conviction can make you the most miserable, but if you've repented and you realize that that Holy Spirit keeping me from going astray, that conviction becomes our very best friend. Comfort, communication. Romans 8 verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. I got saved when I was five years old. I strayed away from the Lord. I didn't really experience the really all the blessings of salvation until I was 19 and I got right with the Lord. And so I wondered, was I saved when I was five? I went forward when I was nine, just to make sure. Did I get saved when I was five, when I was nine, or when I was 19? And you know what the Lord, the Lord showed me from this truth, as well as some of the others that I'm getting ready to present, that I got saved when as a little child, five years old, and the Lord Jesus said, suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. I came as a five-year-old boy. I didn't know anything other than that I was a sinner and that Jesus died for my sins and I wanted to receive him as my savior. You say, that's not, I mean, this is a big book right here. That ain't much. That's enough right there. It wasn't, I didn't believe much, but what I believed was the real deal. It was enough faith, maybe just a little mustard seed, but it was enough to get me saved. Because I remember my entire life from that point on, especially my years of living in the hog pen as a prodigal son, there was always this invisible hand somewhere in my life trying to guide me to lead me, lead me away from sin, lead me out of the hog pen, lead me back into the fold. There was always, there was an invisible roadblock. God would thwart my sin effort. And I would scratch my head and I would go, oh, not again, because when I was backslid and living out there in the world, I wanted the pleasures of my sin. But I knew there is something that is invisibly working against me here. And I'd go home after a night with my friends, and I'd go home and be in my bed all alone, and I'd try something to drown out my conscience, to drown out that conviction. I'd turn the music up in my bedroom, put my headphones on. This was before all of the modern... These headphones were like huge, and they had a cord on them cord was about this thick. I don't know. You can probably hook a garden hose up to your head and it'd be less cumbersome. I had to try to drown out that voice because God was convicting me. And I would lay there and I'd say, oh God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I won't do that again. I'm, I'm going to quit doing that. And the next weekend, I'd be right back out there doing the same thing. Holy Spirit was doing his job. But my problem is I was still just, I, I, I didn't want the consequences of my sin, but I still wanted the sin. 
The Holy Spirit was continually communicating with me. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I tried to drown God out of my life, but I couldn't. He was there. He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. And so my body was the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he was inside of me. And I believe with all of my heart, just like the Word of God says, if we defile the temple of God, God said, I'll destroy you. And I I knew as a 19-year-old young man that God was getting very, very weary of this filthy house that he was living in. And uh, I knew that I needed to get right with God. That testimony matches the Bible. So if you've got a testimony, you know somebody that's got the testimony that they're just living in the hog pen and they go through it for 10, 20, 30, 40 years or their whole life and it just seems like everything's just fine. I got news for you. That is evidence that there is not salvation. That's not evidence that a person saved. It's they're marketing. They're just, they're self-deceived or they're just trying to deceive you into thinking that, yeah, I got my free ticket to heaven, but it didn't really do anything to change my life or to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. Number three, the love of other believers. John 3, 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. How much clearer can the word of God be? If you are born again, then you're going to love other people that are born again. I, I wonder about people who say that they're saved, but they just don't want to be around other Christians. I don't, you know, listen, I, I know that there are some churches that if I had to go to that church, I wouldn't want to go to that church. But you know what? To be around like-minded people or people that have what you have and be under the sound of the Word of God, church is something... Listen, I've been there. When I was a backslidden teenager, church didn't interest me one bit. I sat toward the back and I tried to just... I tried to sleep through it. If I can just kind of hide, nobody notices that I'm here. I'm a preacher's kid too, by the way. I could stick my elbows on my knees and my... My uh, hands underneath my chin and could feel a way to kind of prop my head up and I could go to sleep and take a nap. Every now and then my elbow would fall off my kneecap and it'd wake me up. Or I'd just sit there and just think about the football game that was going to be on that afternoon. wonder how many of you are doing that right now. I didn't care about what was going on, but you know what? When I got right with God, and this is something, listen, this is not how it worked. I got right with God, and it's like, you know what? Now that I'm right with God, I really need to start going to church and paying attention in church. That's not how it worked. I got right with God, and when I went to church, it was like, wow, that's good stuff. I need that. Preacher just said something to help me because I've got a new life. And now all of a sudden it's like I'm feasting on something that I wasn't interested in before. 
I went from being a beef cow to a dairy, or excuse me, a dairy cow to a beef cow. What do you mean by that? When I worked at the dairy, some of you know what I'm talking about. We would feed those dairy cows all the first cutting of alfalfa hay. And they'd go through and they'd eat that hay out of the trough and they would eat all of the leaves and the good tender stuff. All the rest, they would leave it, turn their nose up at it. We'd take and we'd pitchfork all that was left and we would pile the back of the pickup, I mean, twice as high as the cab. And we'd kind of rope it down. Some, I remember one time we hauled it and I rode on top of it just to hold all that in the truck. And we went down to the river and this was like January or February. There's about a foot and a half of snow on the ground and we started pitchforking all that out. And those beef cows, man, they thought they were in heaven. Those dairy cows would turn their nose up at it. Those beef cows, man, they are chowing down. That's the way it was with me when I got right with God. That which I used to turn my nose up at, man, I'm chowing down and my, my heart and my attention is hanging on every single word that the preacher was saying. Started moving up. Next thing you know, I'm up here the second or third row. I didn't ever get up to the front row there. I don't know why. But I started moving up. You know, if some of you would get right with God. We'd have people sitting up here. <laughs> See how that works. <laughs> yeah, I was just felt like being ignored. It's been a while since I've been ignored. Thought I'd say that. All right, seriously now, number four. The chastisement of the Father. Hebrews 12.8, but if ye be without chastisement... Whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Uh, that's someone who claims to have a father that is not their father. And God says here, if you're one of his children, you're going to experience his woodshed. How do, how do I know if I've ever, how do I know that God's taken me behind his woodshed? Listen, I I don't know if you ever got whoopings growing up. I never got a whooping that when it was over, I was going, now what was that that just happened? (laughs) It was crystal clear. Let me tell you something. When God takes you behind the woodshed, you just know. You just know that you know that you know that what just happened to me was of God. Number five, you're not ashamed. Romans ten eleven. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That's a crystal clear proof text or evidence of salvation. And then number six is you become God's construction project. Philippians 1, 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Construction projects go through a lot of different phases. There is excavation, there's pouring the foundation and laying some block, and then the floor, and then the walls. And you know what? I remember building three houses, and two of them I was the general contractor. All three of them I did the majority of the work, or me and my family did the majority of the work, but we had times, I remember one time where I had my garage completely framed in and a big windstorm came up 
on the outside of one of the walls, and this wasn't sheeted, it was just two-by-six framing, and it was braced pretty good. And this windstorm came up, and it took the top sheets of plywood off of the stack, and it caught them, and it started just hurling them into that framed wall. And literally, I had, and, and I was working on the other side of it when that happened. It was like a tornado that happened that soon. And there were about three or four two-by-sixes that got hit crossways, and it literally broke those two-by-sixes. One of those sheets of plywood came through, or at least bounced off the top of that wall, and it went over my head because I was at a chop saw station cutting studs right inside that garage area when that happened. You know what we had to do? We had to tear that wall down and rebuild it. God will work in your life. You may, you may not always be that construction project where, in fact, I don't know anybody that your construction project starts out, you get born again, and then you just start growing. You never make a big mistake. You never have any accidents or you never fall back into sin. Listen, we are all... God's construction project, we're going to have setbacks. We're going to drift away from God. We're going to make mistakes and let sin back into our life. And all that whole time, there's going to be chastisement and there's going to be conviction and there's going to be getting right with the Lord, getting right with others and all of that. But rest assured that the work that God began in you, He will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew seven sixteen, "Ye shall know them by their fruits. I came across this quote by F.B. Meyer. He said, The worth of the gospel has been attested all down through the ages by the characters which it has produced and which have been the world's salt and light. No other teaching has produced such results. Here is the supreme test. There are many new systems of theology. Many nostrums are being loudly advertised, but the one test of them all is in the fruit that they bear. Are you saved? Do you have a no-so salvation? Do you have the evidence as you examine your own life and see whether you be in the faith? And my last point, number three, is to remind you, if you don't know this already, that there are two directions and destinations. When you die, you will either go to heaven or hell. There's no other options according to the Bible. The Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses that say that you just cease to exist, they are, they are wrong. Jesus made that crystal clear. The Catholics teach that there is something in between called purgatory. You don't find that in the Bible. It's a man-made doctrine. In Luke 16, in verse number 22, Jesus speaking, it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell... He lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now listen, you've got a beggar and a rich man. Uh, Lazarus, the beggar, didn't go to paradise because he was a beggar, nor did the rich man go to hell because he was rich. 
But I will say this, because he was rich, that probably affected his character and his life, the decisions that he made, so that he didn't do the things that he needed to do in order to go to paradise. No one showed up to carry the rich man to hell. The angels showed up to carry Lazarus into Abraham's bosom, but nobody showed up to carry the rich man anywhere. You know why that is? Because the soul of the sinner is naturally and automatically headed there. Jesus said in John 3, verse number 18, says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you are without salvation, you are naturally headed to hell. It's not like, well, I did something horrible and now I'm going to hell. No, you did something horrible because of what you are. It didn't make you what you are. If you are saved, then death is merely a doorway to a better place. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you're lost or if you're not saved, then death is not an end of suffering for you. It is only the beginning. I've seen people that had no testimony of ever being saved. Their life bore witness that they didn't know Christ. They lived wicked, selfish lives. And and then they would die of cancer or some very painful, brutal way to die. And their loved ones, to try to comfort themselves, after they'd breathe their last breath, they'd say, well, they're no longer suffering. They're in a better place. Now, let me say this. If that, if I hear that, I figure, you know what? What I say is not going to change. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to heap sorrow onto there. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm not God. I'm not God's fruit inspector. I don't know, I don't know who goes to heaven or who goes to hell. But I know this. You can find comfort in trying to believe something that's not so. It's not going to change the destination of your loved one. If they die without Christ, if you die without Christ, I don't care how much you suffer to get there. When you breathe your last breath, you're going to think that that suffering was the good old days. When you lift up your eyes in hell like that rich man being in torments. Conclusion. It's up to you to ask the question. It's up to you. I'm going to give you three scenarios real quick, and then we're going to close. In Acts 2, verse number 37, Peter has just preached to a multitude there on the streets of Jerusalem. And he preached, he told them about Jesus and the resurrection, and he ended his sermon with saying, look, you you messed up, you crucified your Messiah. And in verse 37, it says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Uh, why did that happen? It's because they, what they heard was the truth and the Holy Spirit of God pricked them in the heart, convicted them. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? It's a great question. In Acts 8 verse number 30, It says that Philip ran thither to him, the Ethiopian eunuch, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Uh, 
And he said, how can I except some, some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Here's a man who is from Ethiopia. He got a hold of the Old Testament uh, scripture. Maybe somebody, maybe some Jewish proselyte told him about the law of God, told him about Israel and God's promises to Israel, and he started searching. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And whatever he came to do, he's, he's heading back home and he, something's not fulfilled in his life. And so he's reading in Isaiah 53, and he doesn't know it, but he's reading about Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit knows, here's a man that's searching. He's asking the right questions. He sends the evangelist, the preacher. And the preacher says, you, you know what, you know what Isaiah is talking about? He says, how can I except some man should guide me? You know what Peter did? At that scripture, he preached to him Jesus. He asked the right question. And then, of course, Acts 16, we have a Philippian jailer. Some man of prominence and importance, and Paul and Silas have been imprisoned, and they sang praises to God, and God sends an earthquake, and all the prisoners, the doors are open, their shackles are all just fall off, and the Philippian jailer sees all this chaos going on, and so he leaps in, and they're still there. And you know what he says to him? Verse 29, then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You got a bunch of people here that just heard a message preached. You've got a man who's just privately reading the Bible and God sends someone to witness to him and then you got a guy that... I don't know what was going on in his heart. Something must have been registering when he sees Paul and Silas that they should have been whining and complaining about being beaten and imprisoned unjustly, but they're not. They're singing praises to God. Uh, maybe they're, maybe they were singing victory in Jesus. And the whole time this Philippian jailer's somewhere and he's hearing it echo through the caverns of those stone walls. Something stirring in his heart when he realized that, hey, I'm getting ready to lose my life. They're, listen, the, the, the rulers here, when these prisoners are gone, they're going to take my life away. And he's in dire straits. But he asked the right question at the right time. Yes. What do I need to do to be saved? The Lord is seeking and searching for you just like he was searching and seeking for those men of Jerusalem, the Ethiopian eunuch, and uh, this Philippian jailer. We don't know his name, but we're going to meet him. Those of us that are saved, we're going to meet him one day. Luke 19, verse number 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he knows where you are. He's seeking to save that which was lost. It doesn't mean that God's lost sight of where you are. What it means is he's trying to get you to understand that he's looking for you and he wants you to be saved. 
Jeremiah 29, verse number 13, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Do you have a no-so salvation? I hope that you do, no pun intended. A no-so salvation. Paul said it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Boy, I don't know what this modern Joel Osteen nonsense does with this, the word of God. It's just not convenient with this. If you're saved, God will make your life all wonderful. Paul's saying, because of Jesus, I'm happened to suffer all of these things. But he says, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul had a no-so salvation. John had a no-so salvation. I have a no-so salvation. Do you have a no-so salvation?